Welcome to the Woman Warriors Podcast. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now here's your host, Elizabeth Cush, LCPC, with today's episode. Welcome back to the Woman Warriors podcast. Uh, I had a nice break last week, was on vacation, and really reminded me how important it is to take some time to recharge and renew. Um, So we're back. This week we're exploring trauma, addiction, and anxiety. And the reason I feel like this topic is important is because Uh, Women are twice as likely as men to experience or to be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, but they're also 138% more likely than men to be a victim of violent crime committed by a partner. So the connection between trauma, addiction, and anxiety is pretty significant, and so today we're going to explore that with Robert Cox. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, hi, everyone, and welcome to the Woman Warriors podcast with today my guest, Robert Cox, who is a licensed professional counselor and a nationally certified counselor. Um, he is the owner of Life Recovery Consulting, uh, which deals with autism, trauma, and addictions. So, Robert, um, if you could add some more about yourself and what brought you into this type of work um yeah why you do what you do thanks um and i'm glad to be here um i think part of the reason i I do the work i do is because i've been through it myself right i had my own trauma experiences throughout childhood um and my way of coping with that was to dive into drug addiction Mm -hmm. right and the age of about 24 24, 25, it's hard for me to remember now, my heart decided it had enough junk in one day and stopped. And um, that, for me, was the turning point. I decided maybe that was not actually how I wanted to die. So um, I've been clean since, about 28 years. And um, I just, as things progressed, I I began um, working more and more in the mental health field, just as a volunteer, then as a coach. Coach, then decided to finish out my master's degree and, and make it an actual career. Mm. So um, that's pretty much how I landed where I am. Um, I went through, I, I, it turns out that, you know, much of addictions is trauma. And so that's when I opened my center here in Richmond. That's what I decided I wanted my focus to be was trauma. Mm. Um, I think that the way it shapes the brain is, is, it just rocks my world. So that's kind of what I went into was that really deep kind of trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I knew um, that you had an addiction history yourself and that there was trauma there too. But I didn't know um, about the health stuff. I didn't know that you had experienced something so intense and life-changing. You know, probably the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> Yeah. I might, I might still be out there using if it hadn't. So, wow. yeah, yeah, that was sounds like it was a pretty profound experience, which it would be. I mean, that's 
pretty yeah. intense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was intensity times 10. Yeah, it was a uh, pretty intense, but yeah. You know, it was pretty miraculous that I even survived it according to the ER doc I spoke to. So Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and so, that, and at such a young age too. Yeah, well, it turns out there's only so much stimulant you can put in your body at one time before it shuts down on you. So Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, and so for you, I know, you know, the focus of this podcast is women and anxiety, but I know that you see, you know, clients who, uh, deal with anxiety and it often or sometimes leads to people using, um, so why, why would that be? Why would substance use be a go-to, uh, coping mechanism for anxiety sufferers? Well, I think that the, the anxiety gets to be so intense that all you want is relief and you don't care how. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not like somebody wakes up and says, oh, you know what? I think I'll try heroin for my anxiety today. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Um, they start out with alcohol or marijuana or whatever substance seems to be working. And then that substance doesn't work so well anymore because it's really not curing the anxiety it's just numbing it out and we build a tolerance to the drug and so it numbs out less and less for lesser amounts of time and so we need to graduate to either larger amounts or a different drug and you know if you're an addict and you're hanging out at parties you're not real um, discriminant about what you take or what you put in your body right Mm -hmm. so somebody says here try this and they hand you a benzo or maybe you've got a doctor that's prescribing you benzos and you find out that works pretty well too, right, um, mm-hmm. to, to numb out. And then that becomes an addiction. So there are a lot of roads there, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so really like the um, using that as a way to mask or avoid or numb those anxious thoughts, feelings, experience. Absolutely. I mean, essentially what most of these medications do, pain relievers and other things, is make it difficult for us to hang on to thoughts very long. And so mm. most of anxiety is is perseverating on, on those anxious thoughts, right? right? So it becomes very difficult to do that. Um, and so there are great drugs for that. However, um, you know, like I said, it doesn't deal with what's underlying that anxiety, What, which is always fear that I'm not going to be okay in the world, right? Right. Um, And so what we're dealing with really is that kind of midbrain limbic response, you know, of Mm -hmm. the amygdala constantly being on the verge of being triggered, that kind of high level of cortisol constantly flowing through my body. Mm -hmm. And how do I reduce that and not just numb it out? With trauma, uh, that anxious response, that limbic system, you know, the cortisol flowing, like, talk to me about how trauma interacts or impacts that process. Well, so um, our brain is already wired to, to see the negative in the world, because that's what protects us, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Peter Levine talks about this a lot in his book, Waking the Tiger, he talks about what he calls false positives, right? This idea that if I hear rustling in the bush, and I assume it's a tiger, and it turns out it's not. It's a false positive, and it's just a fluffy kitten. No harm to me. 
all that's happened is that my cortisol level has spiked some and I worried for a minute and now I can resolve it. But if it, if I assume it's a kitten and I turn around as a tiger, I'm dead. Right. Right. And so our brain developed with a tendency towards these false positives to assume that I'm in danger if I don't understand what's going on around me. Mm -hmm. Right. And when we're in an environment, say as children, um, where even it's not a big T trauma, we're not constantly beaten or anything, but maybe I have parents who are alcoholic or drug addicts and there's this constant level of anxiety in the family about what their behavior is going to be today because they rage on a regular basis. This keeps my limbic region in this kind of artificial, um, heightened hypersensitivity, right? which means I've got a constant flow of cortisol going on and I begin to be used to that. That's how I learn to function. It's the only way I know to function. In fact, uh, we all know people who create drama around them constantly because they don't seem to be able to deal with the world unless there is drama because when there's not drama, they're not getting that feed they're used to and things feel like it's it's just not right, mm-hmm. right? So that becomes a comfortable state, that higher level. Right. The the hell that I know becomes more comfortable than the heaven that I fear. Mm, Wow. Right? Mm -hmm. And so um, we we exist in this. And it's very – so everybody's nervous system goes through these – natural cycles, right? From your autonomic nervous system goes from sympathetic where I'm triggered and the the adrenaline's flowing to parasympathetic where all my adrenaline's going down and things are feeling more relaxed and my muscles stop being so tense. And that cycle may be seven minutes or 21 minutes. It just kind of depends on the individual, but we go through that over and over every day, just naturally, right? Mm -hmm. Natural cycle. But when we exist in these environments with what we call these small T traumas on a regular basis, we get used to tending up towards the top end of that curve where we're constantly in this excited state, right? Or or we learn to numb it out and, and we become non-responsive to everything around us. So we all know people who are completely under-responsive to things that they should be afraid of, right? Right. And and they just don't seem to react to anything. So we end up at these extremes of these natural kind of cycles, right? So at the top end, you may have someone who is in, in almost a manic state and maybe looks very borderline, but they're just stuck in that kind of hypervigilant, mm-hmm. you know, overstimulated place. Yeah, just constantly reacting to whatever instead of really filtering it or – pausing or, you know, being in a more mindful state to be able to respond. Exactly. And so I think, imagine having to exist that way all the time, though, right? It's very hard on your body. For, first of all, it's hard on the fascia in the, in the muscles and stuff, these, these connective tissues. This is why we end up with things like fibromyalgia and Crohn's disease and all, you know, back issues and all these different uh, – the, the pain response in individuals who have had to live under this uh, for years is, is huge. Yeah. So, um, you know, th- this beginning to slow all this down and change this cycle – it's where we finally find release. And if we can't find that kind of release, we just decide numbing out is the second best, right? Right, right. So if our bodies can't do that for us naturally because of how we've 
grown up and seen the world as a kind of as a dangerous place, if our parents are always arguing or whatever the situation might be, then you might look for artificial ways to bring that level of excitement down internally. Right. And the really wild thing is that um, the idea of epigenetics, Mm -hmm. uh, the idea that we can actually pass on this inability to deal with anxiety and resolve it for the, you know, the sympathetic nervous system to, to come under the fold of the parasympathetic system and begin to resolve that anxiety, um, that can be passed on genetically, that lack of ability. Um, we know now that, that, um, babies in utero, when their mothers are really, really anxious all the time and have high levels of cortisol, Mm -hmm. it actually changes their genetic structure. And it damages the gene that is responsible for turning on the parasympathetic nervous system and, and resolving that one chemical that begins to resolve the cortisol level until the body, we're okay, we can calm down, is affected by that. Wow, that's so crazy to think about the generational impact that um, you know trauma and trauma response can have. There was a huge study reported in 2016 of the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors that really indicated this mechanism existed. And then it was through research that we began to find out what that mechanism was. Wow. Wow. That's, I I have not read that study. um, It's pretty fascinating. I bet. I bet it is. And I mean, just... The, the work that I, you know, that I've done, I mean, I worked in an addictions um, center just peripherally. I would go in and do groups and stuff. But oftentimes the stories you would hear were like, well, yeah, my mom um, or my dad was, you know, this highly reactive person. And, you know, here I am. And the way I've coped with it is through substance. And often there was trauma there too. But yeah. Um, and I would say there there's a there's a caveat here, too, in that I, I question, you know, I don't believe it's all genetics. I believe no. what you were hearing is my mom and dad were using. And so mom and dad had no decent coping mechanisms for this anxiety and stress in their lives. So how did they know to teach me what they didn't know themselves? Exactly. Right. Yes. And so I think there's a lot of that there, too, is that these, these this family system has been broken generations ago and now it's just you know continue on and continue on and continue on absolutely yeah i agree i agree and i think that right the fact that oftentimes there isn't an alternative or there isn't a different coping mechanism modeled so there isn't any knowledge or you know stored internally way to to cope with the stress better one thing I use is mindfulness, but often I will um, meet resistance there because people have been trapped in their anxiety for so long mm-hmm. that either initially getting quiet makes them more anxious because it's all bubbling up, right? Right. And Or they really have very little faith that anything's going to work anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So why even try? Like right. nothing has worked up to this point. Right. Yeah. And so – if you were, you know, describing for someone, you know, why mindfulness is helpful, how this can help with the addictions piece and the anxiety piece, like how, how do you see that? How do you formulate that for a client? Um, a lot of psychoeducation. So we talk about how mindfulness works on the system in that essentially, you know, um, 
we carry this because of that inability of the parasynthetic system to turn on and reduce what we're doing when we're mindful is we're keeping our our frontal lobe our top brain engaged right mm-hmm. by con- and connecting it at the same time to the body so that we're watching the breath and we're focusing on this one thing fundamentally it's this anxiety is almost always about the fear of what might happen in the future or the fear of what has happened in the past. And generally that means that it might happen again in the future if I'm not careful. Right. That's almost always what anxiety is rooted to. A fear of the future in one fashion or another. And if I am rooted grounding in what is around me here and now, my mind cannot worry about what might be in the future. Mm, I like that. And so we move the focus. This whole idea of multitasking is a lie. What we're doing is microtasking. We're bouncing from one thing to another to another to another at lightning speeds. And some people are better at that because of their executive functioning than other people. But the bottom line is we can only focus. Our mind can only handle one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. And so if I force that one thing at a time to be, you know, where are my feet on the floor now? Where is my body in space? What do I see around me? What do I hear around me right now, here and now? What does it feel like for the breath to go in and out of my body? I can't think about what might happen 20 minutes from now or 20 days from now. Well, and two, I, well, I mean, from my experience too, is that like if you're focusing on the present, so yes, you're not worrying about the future, but you're also much more present you're seeing what is happening right now which probably well oftentimes is not dangerous or scary or right it's just here right because that sympathetic nervous system is great to have engaged if there is a tiger behind you right right it's not just not very helpful at target yeah you know um and so um and so it, it is about realizing, oh, okay, but we're only going to start connecting to that rational thought of, oh, okay, I really am okay here once I've let go of that anxiety, once I've grounded in that present moment, right? That's what slows it all down. I keep breathing, and the breathing tells – you know, I tell the story – frequently about how I had to have a stress test one time and they did the chemical stress test mm-hmm. and that's horrible. Like you get the choice between a chemical stress test and barehanded wrestling a grizzly bear, take your chances with the bear, you know, because <laughs> it's really the, the target heart rate after they inject you with this chemical. For me, it was 155 beats a minute, which is huge because I'm laying on a table on my left side. I'm not doing anything. Wow. And so but the interesting thing that was happening, I mean, half of me was screaming, this sucks. And the other half of me in my brain was going, this is really kind of fascinating, right? <laughs> because, part, right? right, yeah, the this, this psych part of me is going, wow, I'm, have, I'm starting to have a panic attack. And it's completely induced by this chemical in my body, yeah. you know, yeah. telling my brain that something must be wrong because my heart rate is elevated. Mm. Right. Yep. And so it's that body brain connection. And so what did I do? I defaulted to my breathing. Mm-hmm. I did what I'd been doing for 25 years. I slowed my breathing. I started focusing on my body. And guess what happened? My heart rate went from 145 down to 135. Oh, wow. wow. Against the drug. Wow. 
which which made the nurses really unhappy with me. But <laughs> but, you know, it was fascinating to me. And they're like, you, you whatever you're doing, you need to stop doing it because your heart rate needs to go up. And I'm like, OK, well. Oh, this is going to suck, right? right? But, right. <laughs> but, but I mean, it, it works simply because when I start watching my breath and ground myself in my body in that moment, it is telling that midbrain that I'm okay, you can release. Mm-hmm. It's creating enough space in between my limbic response that I can begin to engage my prefrontal cortex, right? Because the prefrontal cortex takes three to five seconds to make a decision. The amygdala takes about 200 milliseconds to decide if something's dangerous. Wow. And once it's triggered, the game's over. Right, right, right. right. So um, so this re-engages that prefrontal cortex by slowing everything down and telling my amygdala, no, 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 we're okay. I can actually use my body to override my brain at that point. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I like that. And and just the idea that you can, that that, that is something – we do have some control over like the the like i can choose to be more present right now even if it's feeling fearful and scary i i can do this for myself and at, at the next level beyond listening to the breath what we hope to be able to take our our patients to is this level where they can say wow i'm i'm feeling really scared and anxious right now i wonder what that's about and then they can be present with that emotion Instead of having to retreat from it. Yes. And that, that begins to teach them that they have the ability to survive feeling yucky. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Right? Right. And to find that curiosity about it, to be present with it is... Right. And that's where we get into things like identifying my triggers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm feeling really crappy. What's going on, right? I remember about oh six months ago... I pulled up in front of my office. I have two offices, one in Liberty. I pulled up in front of it, and it was rainy and drizzly, and I just started crying. And I'm like, hmm. I got a client in an hour. I can't be doing this shit. What's going on? You know, right. I didn't even know what it was about. Yeah. And I just sat there with myself, and I, I, I took some time to do a mindfulness exercise, and I realized I had just been so stressed out all week. I hadn't taken time to process any of it, and my body was saying, we're done with this stuff, bud. Yeah. You know? Yep. Yep, I hear you. And so it's really just about sitting and just kind of identifying that stuff as it comes up. And that teaches us we begin to learn resilience. Yes. We we begin to learn what, you know, the Marines call embracing the suck, understanding that this is going to be this is going to be crappy for a little while, but I can get through it. Yeah. Well, and I think that piece that right there embracing the suck like being comfortable with being uncomfortable. I think for me, working with clients, but even just um, like some, my kids have anxiety too. So even talking to them about it, like that part of it is the hardest piece to to explain unless you've you've done it right. Like it's right, like- you can, you can explain it, but it, it's very hard to get buy in until they've experienced it. And so we have to start really small, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And really focus on the rewards of whenever you were able to do that. You know, oh, wow, how did that feel? You were able to sit with it for a while, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I just um, – and it's – you know, we live in a society that tells us it, it, the big lie out there, the root of, of so much of the opiate problem and the addictions going on right now is that we've bought into this lie that we shouldn't have to feel pain. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
When was that ever a guarantee in life? I tell people all the time, pain is an absolute guarantee in life. Suffering is a choice. When we choose to try and avoid the pain, we create suffering. You know, um, oh my God, I got so angry at a couple years ago, a Super Bowl commercial. You know, are you suffering the effects of too much opiate use? Here, take this pill and you won't be constipated anymore. Oh my gosh, I know, right? You know, I was furious. I'm like, what? This is, you know, maybe your constipation is trying to tell you you're taking too many opiates. Right. You yes. know? Yes. I know. It's like, let's so, let's cover up this problem with another Right. Pill. No, no. Let's not do that. Let's just, we'll sell you another pill. Uh, yeah. And it's, and I, I really, um, I mean, I adhere to, or I work on, you know, being more mindful around my own anxiety on a daily basis. And it is extremely, extremely helpful. Um, but I still have anxiety. And I think that is another part of this. It's like, it's not going to go away. No. And here's the big secret. We all have anxiety. Yes. Right. Because our brains are wired towards anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and safe. so it is, it is a perfectly natural thing to have it. The, the question is only how am I dealing with it? If I can learn to sit with it for a while and realize it's just really horrible right now, but it's going to be better then it's going to go much more quickly. It's when I get caught in that feedback loop, you know, yes. that, that it goes on and on and on. And then we end up with things like fibromyalgia and Crohn's disease and gastrointestinal issues and, you know. Yeah. And so if you were to offer one tip to people who struggle with anxiety, um, women in particular, what would be your go-to tip? Start paying attention to your breath. Start your own mindfulness practice. That's I'm I'm I've never ever had a patient who didn't respond to mindfulness. I will give you I've had I've had people come to me who were literally not able to leave their homes. The anxiety was so bad. Had to be driven to the first appointment by a spouse because the anxiety was so bad. And three weeks in were driving themselves. And six months later, had a job at a very busy department store because they dedicated themselves to practice twice a day, every day, right? I deal with kids on the autism spectrum all the time, and anxiety is a huge issue there. Mm-hmm. And I, I have yet to have someone who doesn't respond to these techniques if they really dedicate themselves to, to doing it. Well, and I think that's that's part of it too is like that it's 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 a practice like it you right you do have to practice it it doesn't just <laughs> yeah i had a i had a, a client tell me a couple of weeks ago yeah I, I tried the mindfulness once this week but i'm really not that much calmer and <laughs> and i'm a pretty big dude and i looked at him and i said you know i went to the gym this week and i just at one time and i haven't lost any weight at all and he just laughed, you know? Yes. It's, yeah. it's not something we can do once and done. Oh, no. It's something we practice. But here's the really cool thing about it. If we dedicated ourselves to it, we start to see the rewards fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. And because that same patient decided to try some body scan stuff with me, and now he does it all the time. We start to get almost addicted to the rewards we're getting from mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that it becomes just part of your, uh, I, I don't know if it's outlook is the right word, but part of your daily experience where 
you know, as you tune more into yourself and what's happening, like that just becomes part of what you do. Well, you, you literally, first of all, one of the things that it does is it breaks the associational bonds of the neurons in the brain and, and reconnects them. So if I am in the woods again and I hear a rustling in the, and, and the crack of limbs behind me, and then I smell a musky odor, and then I'm attacked by a tiger, yeah. right? And every time I'm in the woods from then on, and I have any of those experiences, I smell anything musky, or I hear rustling in the, the bushes behind me, or any cracked limbs or anything, I freak out, and I think it's a tiger. Mm-hmm. Until I expose myself to those stimulus enough times and keep my breathing going – and experience it not being a tiger. And then those neurons that wired together begin to break apart and rewire with, it can be okay. Yeah. Right? And yeah. so it, it really becomes, it's about us conditioning our brain in new ways. Yes, that awareness becomes part of just how you're living your life. I now am much more likely, my children are alive today because I learned this technique, right? That they come at me with some <laughs> stupidity, and instead of rah, I d- I take a bre- breath, and you know, and then I decide what I'm going to do, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So, <laughs> well, and and I would say part of this whole um, mindfulness experience and rewiring your brain is that sometimes we do revert back to old behaviors and respond oh, sure. in ways that aren't necessarily what we would have liked. But then being able to look back and go, oh, okay, that was the point where I went back to old behaviors and screamed at my kids or, you know, threw something against the wall or whatever it is, or even just. Well, that, and I I learned to embrace the sucky period of repair that I need to embrace, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm able to sit down with the kids the next day and say, you know, I'm sorry I yelled like that. What you did scared me and I don't like being scared and I reacted with anger instead. And that was not cool, right? Actually had that conversation. So, but it involves being able to sit with that behavior Mm -hmm. and understand this was not appropriate and I'm just going to have to embrace the sucky moment of being imperfect and go sit with my kids or my spouse or whoever and talk to them about this. But the really cool thing is in that moment of repair, the the relationship is much, much stronger. Oh, oh, because you're connecting on this very human level yeah. like, here I am showing up and being well crazy. and you're 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 teaching them in that moment mm-hmm. life isn't about being perfect yeah you know it's about being present and so that that really is you're you're able not only to make that repair but to teach them that really valuable lesson in that space yeah yeah well robert this has been uh, a really fantastic conversation i um it's nice to talk to you about all these things uh even though it's recording and not face-to-face but um, yeah yeah. hopefully we'll meet at a conference some year so yes i hope so i hope so so tell me what's um you know what what resources you might suggest for people who are struggling with anxiety or addiction or both or want to know more about mindfulness what there's a really good app out there called Insight Timer, mm. and it's free. 
and it's pretty cool free. Now, you can hire coaches on that app and stuff if you want to, but there are a lot of free exercises on there. The other thing you can do is just get on YouTube and start with a basic body scan meditation, right? Yeah. And let that teach you where in your body you're holding all your tension because you will definitely notice. So just starting your practice now is really, really good. I'll shoot you a link um, to a video about anxiety and stress and how that's related to depression. That was basically a presentation I did locally at various libraries. Um, But but I've got it on YouTube. And how and why mindfulness helps and the chemicals that are involved in that kind of stuff. Perfect. So I, I think I am just such a proponent of mindfulness as a beginning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and find out what's there. And if it's causing, you know, mental health issues, depressions, get into a therapist, you know. Yeah. It, it, at the very least, that is a person you can trust to hold all that stuff. Good advice. So where can people find you out there in the social media world? I am at liferecoveryconsulting.org and I have Life Recovery Consulting is my page on Facebook. Um, If they want to start getting into mindfulness, they can connect with my Mindful Recovery Facebook page, which is the podcast that I'm going to start bringing back in the next month. Mm -hmm. So, which is dedicated to teaching mindfulness and talking about trauma (coughs) and recovery from trauma, things like that. Yeah, I love your podcast. So, so thanks. <laughs> it hasn't been around in a year because I've been working on the book and it and it. Uh, I just finished it up, and so I was like, okay. I had several authors who were are pretty big time authors reach out and say, hey, I listen to the podcast. Can I come on and talk about my book? And so I'm going to be doing a couple of those interviews coming up. Oh, cool, cool. Well, tell us about the book too, because that I know. Um, a new thing it is know. it is called the Life Recovery Method. It's autism treatment from a trauma perspective. Um, autism shapes the brain in the same way that trauma does. So we end up with an increase in the size and density of the amygdala often, Mm -hmm. not always, but often. And we end up with things like a reduced size in the prefrontal cortex, an underdeveloped corpus callosum, um, damage to the white matter of the brain because of an overconnectivity. The brain doesn't prune as well. All these things, as I did my research, really resembled what I was seeing in early childhood trauma and developmental trauma. And and so I had at the time I was doing this research, I had already been working with individuals on the spectrum for probably 15, 16 years. And so it really just all the puzzle pieces started to fall into place. And I started to um, at the time I was a service coordinator for the state doing case management. But I started to direct the services in a way that I thought would approach the trauma first and worry about the behaviors later. And it really started to work. Mm -hmm. And so I dug more and more into why it's working, what seems to be, what does the research say? And so this book is a result of a lot of that work and then my work as a therapist with individuals on the spectrum and how we can begin changing and be more effective in our treatment if we start to direct it in a way that addresses the trauma that's going on in the brain first that is imposed by sensory issues, by social exclusion and bullying, by a, a thousand different things. Look forward to reading it. Well, thank you again for your time today. Um, 
And thanks for being patient with me through all the technical stuff. <laughs> no, no worries. I've been there myself. It's most people think I'm just genetically bald. It's really because I started a podcast. So <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode with Robert Cox. Uh, what really struck home for me was the how important uh, mindfulness can be in the management of anxiety, past trauma, and substance use. I know that I use it, it has helped me tremendously in managing my anxiety day to day. Um, you know, practicing mindfulness, practicing meditation regularly has really made the difference. And so I hope you enjoyed this episode and we will further explore mindfulness and trauma and women in future episodes. Ciao for now from This Woman Warrior. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Woman Warriors podcast. Music was written and performed by Andy Cush. If you'd like more information on the Woman Warriors podcast, the show notes, the resources that were discussed, or links to the profiles of the people who were interviewed, you can find them at www.womanwarriors.com.